Hey there, welcome to episode four of Existential. This is part two of my two-part, that's why it's part two, conversation with Andre Henry. And my God, was the first part of this conversation not amazing? Well, you wouldn't be here if it wasn't. Or maybe you're here by accident, just jumped into episode four. You're like, oh, let me check this out. You need to go back all the way to episode one, but if you just want to hear the first part of this conversation, go back one episode to episode three and check out the first part of my conversation with Andre so that this second part will make sense to you as we jump into it. And we call this episode, both of these episodes, That Shadowy Place, because what we're talking about in these conversations is the place that we are oftentimes unwilling to go as a society, I should say, as a as dominant society, there are places, there are conversations, there are things about politics, about God, about community, spaces, areas that we're uncomfortable going into. And we assume that if we just don't go there, it will all go away. In fact, I have literally had people say to me that if we just stop talking about race, we wouldn't have an issue. Well, hopefully, because you're listening to this, you and I both know that that's absolutely ridiculous. Anyway, Andre and I uh, continue our conversation about that shadowy place here in part four of part four, part two, episode four of Existential. Let's get into it now. This is Existential the podcast that reminds us that we're human first before we're anything else. And from that place, we can hear each other's stories and experiences as we wrestle with issues of justice, faith, and culture. I'm your host, Corey Leak. Thanks for listening. We grew up in this, like, this environment, Christian environment, that wanted to bring both sides together in a way that, from what I know about you, and I definitely can say about me, in a way that felt satisfactory and felt like the righteous way of approaching reconciliation and conversations about race. And today, I find that so problematic. As an example, um, you know, there's all this uproar about Black Ariel and you know mm-hmm. the hashtag not my aerial was was trending on Twitter on the fourth of July, yeah. and I saw Christians saying all of this back and forth about aerial is just silly. We should just respect each other, as if there was an argument being made on both sides of right. some kind of issue. There was no issue. There was Disney casting a black aerial. And white people being mad about it. But somehow, exactly. somehow, black folks still had to be the villains along with white people yeah. for just existing somehow. Yeah, people, people do not, there are a lot of people that don't know how to just say these white people are wrong. Mm-hmm. It is, they just can't do that. They have to make it as though there are two, there are two parties doing something as equally wicked to one another. And um, so I, I realized first that, you know, my tone actually wasn't helpful 
And the second thing that I realized was that in trying so hard to make sure that I don't offend any white people or that I give them overtly the benefit of the doubt, that many times I wasn't able to say the thing that needed Mm -hmm. to be said. Like I ended up obscuring the message, basically Mm -hmm. is what I'm saying. And I remember there was a there was a point where I posted one thing and I can't remember exactly what I did, what I did post, because usually what I used to do was, okay, I would post like a picture of Dr. King and I would post a quote like the riots that happened after all of these, because this was the height of the Black Lives Mm -hmm. Matter movement. So sometimes you would hear reports of rioting or looting. Now, we'll just set to the side the fact that sometimes the authorities send agents provocateurs into um, freedom movements in order to stir up trouble and to instigate. So, But anyway, there are reports of riots and looting and stuff like that. And so my way of responding to stuff like that would be like to post a picture of Dr. King and to post his quote that says, a riot is the language of the unheard. So it's very kind of passive aggressive. Mm -hmm. And I remember posting something one time, and I don't remember exactly what I said, but I know that I was being, like I asked a question or something like that, right? Try to rate, like start a discussion. And I had a moment with myself the next, like a few hours later. And I think it was the next day I posted a longer post, but basically said, listen, I walked up to the line and then I didn't say what needed to be said. So here's, here's the deal. Now I remember what I said. Now I said, I said, when black people talk about our experiences of racism, we are not submitting them for white approval. We do not need for you to agree with us. We do not need your corroboration and we don't need you to validate it. We're not asking you. We're telling you. This is not a question. This is an announcement. Mm. And that was like a watershed moment for the way that I started interacting on the topic of race, where I just, since that day, I've just been very straightforward and candid about it. And have just been like, listen, if you can't, <laughs> if you're, <laughs> yeah, yeah, if you can't accept it, then talk to somebody else. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, so in all of that, right, you are, you have done extensive work, both theologically, philosophically, uh, on the Christian faith, as well as nonviolent resistance, as well as not just watching the 13th every day, but reading books on black theology and just blackness in general in America. And as someone who's done that amount of work, how has white people disagreeing with you or claiming that you are race baiting who have not done the same work that you've done that also claim to be Christians how has that affected your faith? Because the reason I ask you that is because for me, honestly, it has been at times a real challenge mm-hmm. when white folks that I know have not done the work, either theologically or socially, to mm-hmm. understand these things, constantly want to push back and don't even realize that they're, that they're wanting to push back and the confidence they have to push back is a part of the problem. It has caused me to have to really search for peace, to really search for God to give me some stability to maintain my faith. 
that mm-hmm. I learned from white theologians indirectly. So mm-hmm. how, has, how has that affected you? Has it affected you? How have you dealt with that? Yeah, I mean, I think that the issue of double consciousness is just very real for someone who is black and being black is important to you and being Christian, if being Christian is important to you as well. And for me, like a lot of the opposition that I got when it started coming was from white pastors, mm-hmm. white evangelical pastors. That. And I remember one guy I actually went to school with at Southeastern. He's a senior pastor now in Florida. We had a video conversation because, again, I used to pursue these conversations. Like if there was a rift in the conversation, I would pursue it and try to try to talk through it, mm-hmm. you know. And I remember him saying to me that racism is not a priority to God. I remember him like, wow. He looked me in the face and said that because wow. he really believed that. and. And see, here's my thing. Like when white people go to the grocery store, they ask God to give them a good parking space or something like that. Right. So if you think that like if you think that God cares about you not having to walk very far from your car into Ralph's to get some avocados, then how in the world could you tell me that, you know, God's priorities don't also include racial violence? Absolutely. You know. And I remember in that conversation. You know, it it started off with him telling me that you've forsaken the greatest commandment to love your neighbor and all this other kind of stuff. And so I asked him, I said, dude, what is so what is so heretical about what I'm saying? Because all I'm saying is that, you know, we really should like look into this whole black people dying more often in police encounters. Like, I I just don't understand why that is so. why why that's such an abomination to you it's because he believed your college professor mufasa who told you not to go over there to that state of the area. he didn't go over there. exactly exactly he said because he said it goes against what the church has taught for thousands of years mm-hmm. and i'm like you do realize that martin luther and john calvin and all these other people you do realize that for as much as they have contributed to theology, that they also were men, and they were men from their context, and they were men of their time, yep. and that the things that they wrote about and their positions and all of that stuff was shaped by their moment in history Absolutely. and their cultural upbringing and, and the circumstances that they were responding to. And his response was, well, I would say that that's a very modern way to look at things. And so here's basically what I'm saying is that a lot of white people can't tell the difference between what is orthodoxy and what is just white hegemonic thought. Right? Mm-hmm. And so that is, again, like I said, like people trying to police the boundaries and telling you this is how you're supposed to think and this is how you're supposed to articulate things and this is what your Christianity is supposed to look like. And enough. I had several conversations like that to eventually one day I just woke up one morning and I was like, you know what? I think, listen, all these white pastors are telling me that Christianity is really about white people and like not just white people in general, but like middle class white American values and interests. That's what they're telling me. God cares about what white middle class Americans care about. So, you know, listen, if Christianity is for white people, then just let them have it. You know, like, why, 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 am I, why am I arguing with all these people who are leading churches and all this kind of stuff? Listen, if this is their thing, 
then maybe I should just, you know, leave it alone. And um Yeah, man. Yeah. I had now I had an epiphany kind of in that in that moment, you know, as I was processing that that morning. And the Exodus story came back to me. And I started thinking about how in this story of the Exodus, this is like a clear biblical example of systemic oppression. And God cares about, God cares about the plight of the Israelites within that context. And God does something to save them. Now, when Jesus talks about what he's got to do, you know, going to the cross and all that kind of stuff. In Greek, he talks about his exodus. Mm. <laughs> um, so this is like, this is a quintessential picture of what it means to be saved in the Bible, salvation. And in that original story, that exodus story, salvation looks like literally rescuing the bodies of these people from this political and social oppression. It means walking them through the Red Sea, if need be, to new land, right? So very material idea of what it means to be saved. And I'm not saying that that is the only thing that it can mean, but it has to at least mean that, right? It, it can right. mean more, but it can't mean less. And so that was like the beginning of me at least leaning into a more liberationist type of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Although at the time, that's not what I would have called it, but that's the direction I was going in. And so I eventually did return to, you know, I did go into that shadowy, shadowy area that my theology professors told me not to mm-hmm. um, as an adult and read some more of James Cone, who's the founder of Black Liberation Theology, for those listening who don't, aren't familiar with him, and found this idea, you know, that liberation theologians uh, profess that theology is about liberation. The task of theology is Absolutely. liberation. I found that to be compelling, you know. Now, I still wrestle with that, though, like, <laughs> because and I don't I think that when you're black or you're part of any kind of persecuted minority, like, who is God and what is God and what is God's relationship to society and to the world and all that kind of stuff? It's something that you have to wrestle with. I'm not saying that people in more privileged situations don't have to, but, you know, it's just different. I mean, when you have, when, when you read James Cone, when I, I read um, God of the Oppressed at your recommendation, which thank you for that. It was, it was, it was amazingly mind blowing. One of those I had to read slow and push back from the table and, and put my fist under my chin and just stare out the window for so much of that, of that book. Mm. But one of the things that he talks about in that book that blew my mind I, I don't know how I never even realized this or knew this was when he talked about how during slavery, the white slave owner was a Christian mm-hmm. and would pray to God that his uppity Negroes would stay in line and not try to escape. He would his earnest prayer yeah. was to keep every per- body, every black body he had enslaved and the earnest prayer of the yeah. slave a hundred feet away was for their liberation Mm -hmm. and God had to answer one of them. (laughs) So, so we cannot say yes to both. He can't say yes to both. (laughs) 
So I think that when you talk about the ex- different experiences for people in the majority or people who are part of the st- what makes up the status quo and those that are on the margins, whether they be immigrants or black or, or Latino or whatever other non-white person is pushed aside, there is a different religious experience. And it, who is God to me is an incredible question. And it is a it is a it it is different depending upon who's asking it, right? And that is the that's the shadow area of theology that I think is amazing, and I love it. I like I <laughs> that's that feels like the whole area a lot of times. Yeah, well, I mean, like the the questions that are given and decided for white Christians when they think about faith, they just they just can't be as certain for black people, you know, like there are, I know that there are black people who are like, listen, you know, the Bible says what it says and you know, that's it. That settles it. Right. Right. (laughs) I know that they exist, but if you're looking at the whole of scripture, I just think, listen, that Bible says slaves obey your masters. (laughs) So automatically, Black people have to come up with some nuanced ways of being Christian if they're going to be and if they're going to take the Bible seriously, because because it's in there. Like, if we're going to just take it at face value, then we should be saying then, well, you know, emancipation should have never happened. Neither should the civil rights movement because you know, it's unbiblical. Right. right. So so we already have to we already have to think a bit nuanced about what it means to be a Christian. Who is God to us and all that kind of stuff? We have to, if if we're going to reconcile those things. And so, you know, when when you ask, you know, who is God? Not not who is God to me, but you know, how has it affected my my Christianity? When I was white, I was a much more certain Christian, mm. you know, and I had a lot more certainty about a lot of different things about Christian faith. And you know, the problem of evil has always been a challenge to very tight, pristine theological frameworks and systems and worldviews and things like that. The problem of evil has always, you know, raised questions about who is God? What is the nature of God's relationship to to the world? But when when that problem of evil becomes personal, when it's no longer talking about just, you know, how can there be an all knowing, all powerful, all benevolent God, but, you know, people are dying of sickness and cyclones and poverty and all that kind of stuff. But when you're talking about how, if, if there is an all-knowing, all-benevolent, all-powerful God, then how is it that the police beat my neighbor, J.R. Thomas, to death? Well, where was God then? Who is overseeing the world? Who's responsible for this? How can I sing about how, you know, I'm no longer a slave to fear because I'm a child of God when, you know, literally if I'm having a mental health breakdown, I'm afraid to call the police because I know that my neighbor was mentally ill. He called the police while he was having an episode and he died in that exchange. How can I sing that song Mm. about a God who fights my battles and, you know, you split the sea so I could walk right through it. And, you know, all of these things, how can, you know, it, it, it it raises some very important questions, I think. Absolutely. It totally does. You know, I tell people, you know, I I don't know how to describe my Christian faith. I I think I'm still a Christian, um, and that's the best I can do right now. You know, and I and I, and I feel like that should that should absolutely be enough. I think that is 
I think throughout history, we have always tried to, as human beings, we've always tried to keep everybody inside of the boundaries of our doctrine. Because once once the boundaries of our doctrine expands, either may, maybe we think it includes too many people, or maybe we think that, you know, I don't know what we think, but we tend to get, be afraid of that. But it's a legitimate conversation. It's a legitimate place to be. Um, you know, I, when I was reading Tanashi Coates' book, Between the World and Me, he asked a lot of similar questions. And they are quandaries that white folks don't have to deal with specifically. Mm-hmm. And they're ones that they don't really have great answers for specifically when it comes to those things. And those things tend to make us over-spiritualize salvation, to your point earlier about salvation, at least at minimum needing to be about the salvation of actual bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, so, man, I, I, I've, I've been excited about having this conversation with you ever since you said you'd come on. And, and it, it has been uh, just so amazing sitting here listening to the things you've said, hearing your story. But is there anything you'd like to say uh, as we wrap up? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that you wanted to talk some about or that you wanted to really help people understand that they're just ordinary people that are doing this kind of work, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. I hope that I hope that people do, you know, come away with that sense of like, you know, I listened to this. I listened to this and I heard this guy who, you know, basically he just kind of felt provoked to do something, you know? Mm-hmm. Um because literally like we all have that much power, right? Like we all have the power to recognize that something in the world is not right and to respond in a way that feels natural to us, in a way that suits us and fits our gifts and talents and passions. And that can bring people around us, you know, like we didn't really get into this, but you know, the, you know, the first thing that I did was I went live on Facebook and I was just talking about my experiences and I started writing and I started making some videos. And then next thing you know, like I was lugging a boulder around town for, gosh, like yeah, maybe man. I think four, four months or something like that. Like we have, every day. We, we have to talk about the boulder. We have to talk about the boulders. <laughs> so, so, okay, let, let, listen, we're going to wrap up the podcast, but we can't, we can't, we can't. We have to talk about the boulder. <laughs> so, gotta wrap it up. Yeah, so, talk about the street preacher vision that you had. Mm-hmm. Can you start the story from there and then tell us about the boulder? Wait, where did you hear me talk? Did I tell you about that? <laughs> I don't know, bro. <laughs> I don't know. I know I heard you talk about the street preacher somewhere and, okay. and it's, it's stuck, it stuck to my bones. So maybe it was it's a dream. I don't know. No, but I mean, I, I, I have, I mean, I, it's not like the first time I've ever, I've ever spoken about it, but I just, I just didn't remember. So anyway, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, in the weeks that followed Philando Castile's death, I just was kind of really distraught about it a bit. And, you know, to the point where I just, I I was feeling kind of antisocial. I didn't really want to eat very much. I just, and I was just mad. Like I would go to class. I was finishing up my degree at sem- in seminary. I would go to class and I was in beginning Greek, I remember. And we were learning all this, you know, <laughs> um, and ete usi, you know, all this stuff. 
And I was just like, who cares? Like, this, <laughs> you know, people are dying right now. <laughs> people are dying right now. Who cares how to decline a Greek verb? That's just how I felt. And um, I went home one day. It was July 25th. And I had some leftovers in the fridge and I had taken them out and I sat down to eat. And next thing you know, I had like a daydream or something like that where, but I was like conscious, you know, I, I didn't, uh-huh. you know, usually when you daydream, you don't realize that you're daydreaming, you know? Right. <laughs> right. You, you don't, you don't know if you don't know if you were in the body or out of the body. You don't know which one it was. Usually when you're daydreaming, you think you actually are the goldfish in your daydream. You know, like you don't realize, <laughs> you don't realize that you've gone somewhere until somebody snaps you out. But I know that I knew that I was some. I I knew that I was in a in a thing. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, in the thing, I was walking in downtown Pasadena or, or old, old Pasadena, where where I was living at the time, and I could hear from the park from inside the park, someone was preaching. There was a street preacher. And I remember thinking to myself, like, are Christians, wait, Christians are still doing that? Like, they still got, they still go out on the street and, and be like yelling at people <laughs> in the name of Jesus? <laughs> I, I know, I'm not a fan of street preachers. I don't like them. But I'm always mm-hmm. curious about them. They're right. like a form of entertainment to me. For sure. So I'm like, let's go see how bad this sermon is, usually. And so, you know, True, being true to myself, I walked into the park in in the daydream, and I followed the voice. And I looked when I finally came to where the street preacher was. I looked at, and it was me. I I was the street preacher. (laughs) I don't know how I didn't recognize my own voice from outside the park. I mean, it's a daydream. You can't blame me. Yeah, you can't. Yeah. So I, I, it was me. I was standing there, and I was next to. Uh, a boulder that was on a cart, like a cart with wheels, and the boulder was painted white, and on it was written all of these different injustices and of uh, racial injustices, and the names of victims of state violence, and all this other stuff. And I was preaching, but I was quoting like these whole passages from Isaiah and the Book of Revelation about the world that ought to be. And then next thing you know, I was, I came back to myself and I was sitting over that plate of leftovers and I began to weep because I felt like it was something I was supposed to do and I really didn't want to do it. Hmm. And I'm like, I'm a sane, intelligent person. I'm not about to drag no boulder around Los Angeles. (laughs) No street preacher. (laughs) I'm about to do that. but I did. I did it because I felt like it. I didn't feel comfortable not doing it. So, so I did. And, um, you know, I saw some for some people that clarified some things for them. Like I, I've sat down with coffee for coffee with some with, you know, a couple of people who who either that helped them to get active and to do something or it helped them to sit back and start listening to black people. And to stop arguing, to at least sit down and listen, and they change their perspective. Um, so it had some effect, you know, not not only positive, but I know we can't get into all of that. But anyway, you know, that was a huge catalyst for me, and it has brought a lot of people into my life to listen to me and 
to work alongside me in many different ways. And I think that a lot of times when, you know, people see someone who's, you know, I have a weekly mailing list and I'm writing music and, you know, I'm speaking and stuff like that. Now, like people put you in this different category, like, okay, you're an activist and I'm a regular person. And like, no, I'm a regular person. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. like, I'm not a special class of person. I'm not, I don't belong to a special class of person. I, I'm just another regular person. I just so happen to be, you know, doing this on a regular basis. And you can too. Anybody can. Like, like I said, like, I didn't understand these things for a long time. It was a very, you know, it took most of my life for me to really kind of get what's happening around me. And I'm still learning. I'm still reading all the time. I'm still talking to people and trying to interview people who know so much more than I do and just pursuing the questions. And so, you know, like we talk about, you know, people, you know, what people might take from this. I hope that people do take take from this, that everybody, no matter what role they play in this work for racial justice, everyone starts as somebody that is just, you know, they're a mailman or a, a preacher or a, yeah. a lawyer or a house housewife or, you know, a soccer mom, a bank teller, a graphic designer, whatever. Everybody starts that way. Even Dr. King, you know, he he didn't come out the womb saying, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going I'm to change America. I'm an M. Jim Crow. You know, <laughs> he, did he was a he was a Baptist preacher who stumbled into the work because he had a gift and he had charisma and people recognized that he would be a good spokesperson. And he actually thought about not doing yeah. it. He he tried to quit one night, you know, after they bombed his house. He sat down with the Lord and had like a come to Jesus moment where he was like trying to figure out how he could back out of his role as a leader in the civil rights movement without looking like a coward. But instead, he experienced the presence of God at that coffee table that told him, you know, I will always be with you, Mm. you know, and that helped him go forward. And, you know, Gandhi was the same way. He was a lawyer and he was not good at it. He was a bad lawyer. And. He just was getting on a train one day and he got beat up and thrown off the train for being an Indian. And he sat on that platform that night and he thought about it and he, he realized that he had a choice. He said, I can either continue to submit to this kind of treatment or I can fight for the liberation of my people. And you can't even mention these names without people. Th- you know, as soon as I mentioned Dr. King, as soon as I men- mentioned Gandhi, people are like, man, these people are unrelatable. They're like the greatest, some of the greatest <laughs> freedom fighters that ever, ever lived. And I was literally thinking about this like yesterday morning. I was like, I'm so glad that Dr. King was not perfect. Like, absolutely. I, I'm, I mean, I, I'm not happy that, you know, um, about the, the allegations that he cheated on his wife and, you know, and things like that. Like, I'm not happy for the way that that affects a family and his reputation. But I'm so glad that he made some mistakes. Right. <laughs> that, he was human, that, he, that he was, that he wasn't, didn't have some supernatural abilities because that means if he has if he's endowed with something that's beyond what you and I could have then we're in trouble until someone else comes along exactly but if ordinary people can go well I'm going to speak up or right. I'm going to I'm going to act I'm going to educate myself I'm going to donate I'm going to volunteer then then we've got hope so last thing, man, tell us what you are, what you're up to now. I know you, you're blogging. I know that you've got the Hope and Heart Appeals community and the Patreon that goes along with that. But tell mm-hmm. us what's going on where, where people mm-hmm. can, can stay up to date with what's going on with Andre Henry. 
Yeah, the, the best way is to join the Hope and Heart Pills email list, honestly, because I send out that I send out every week. I send out a little blurb about social change and anti-racism, which is, you know, the thing that I really that's the thing. That's my jam. Like, I'm always reading about how can ordinary people change the world and how have they already. And so I, I send that out every Saturday. So if people go to AndreRHenry.com. They can join the list there. And I also send out every, anything, update, yeah, any any update whatsoever. Like if it's music, if it's a live event, if it's a new podcast episode, a new article, you know, I send it out on that email list. Okay. Well, man, thanks for being here with us. I so appreciate your voice. Thanks for being on the podcast, and um, y'all will be hearing from Andre again. Hopefully, hopefully you'll come back and and share some stuff with us because I there's a ton of stuff we haven't even talked about. We could sit here for 18 hours. Thanks for being here, bro. Yeah, thanks for having me. I don't know about you, but I am bummed that that conversation had to end. Hopefully you were inspired by what you heard to get involved right where you are, whether you're a mom or a dad, a brother or a sister, a son or a daughter and making the world around you more just for everybody. Hopefully that's what happened as you listen to this. I'd like to thank Andre for coming on the show. I just, I don't have the words. Um, That's my brother. And anytime I get to talk to him, I just love it. I'd like to thank Comfort Fit for the music. Song is called Sorry. I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast share this podcast, to rate, review this podcast. And uh, I also would just lastly like to thank you for, no, before I thank you, I want you to go to the show notes and you can stay in touch with Andre and myself. And now I'd like to thank you for helping us to contend for a better world together, one conversation at a time. <laughs>